We're taught that patients' ideas, concerns and expectations are central to a successful consultation, but has icing gone too far? A What Your Patient Is Thinking article published this week talks about the pressure that asking questions in the wrong way can put on a patient. I'm Sophie Cook, Education Editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by the author of that article, Rosamund Snow, who's also the BMJ's Patient Editor, and by Roger Neighbour, retired GP and former President of the Royal College of General Practice and author of The Inner Consultation. Rosamund and Roger, thanks for joining me today. Rosamund, can I ask, what prompted you to write this article? So this came out of um, sitting in the pub, really, with some friends, and uh, one of my friends said to me uh, that she'd just been to the GP and that um, we all started saying, oh, you know, how are you and all the rest of it. She said, well, the thing that was really annoying was that the GP found asked me for my symptoms and then said, and what do you think is wrong? And we all fell about laughing because we'd all experienced something similar and we couldn't understand uh, what it was that they were trying to do. So everyone was kind of saying, uh, you know, they're the bloody GP. That's why we've come to the GP. Why are you asking us this? And um, I found that if you tend to say this to anyone who's been recently to the GP, they do tend to roll their eyes and say, I, yeah, I don't understand uh, why they would be uh, saying this. And I was talking to uh, a natural GP um, about uh, what what might be the reasoning behind this question. And I found out that there was this entire way of teaching communications um, that involves being iced. So she said to me, you've been iced. That's what that was. Um, and uh, I learned from her that this was all about um, very good intentions. It was trying to make sure that the patient's ideas, concerns and expectations would be heard. But that doesn't come across when you're on the other side of the consulting table and it's just confusing. Um, and so I started to think, I wonder why, um, I wonder what the, the thinking is behind this. Did any patients get asked about how this would would pan out? Um, and uh, I, I was just fascinated by the whole process that this had become a, an acronym and a verb uh, that you could be iced in order to communicate rather than just be communicated with. So Roger, from your perspective, what went wrong in that consultation? It sounds like a, a partial skills failure, if I can put it in those terms. Uh, it sounds like the behaviour of, of, of somebody who understands that it's important to try to see things through the patient's eyes and to, and to get the patient's take on things, because that's clearly a good idea for, 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 for trying to help. But it sounds as if that doctor mistook ice, um, and, and instead of it being a reminder, thought of it as a technique. Um, ice is a reminder it's just a, 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 a little whisper in the back of your mind try to understand things from the patient's point of view it's not a technique and it's certainly not a verb in in some role plays I've even had patients I've seen, seen a role play patient where a patient will come in and say oh I've got a problem with my knee and the doctor will say what do you expect me to do about it <laughs> and, and, and you can see them thinking you see I've, I've done the expectations <laughs> ah it's horrible <laughs> just imagine what it's like to have that said to yes. you um, can we talk a bit about the history of, mm, of sure. ice and where it yes. came from yes you're far too young to remember, but if you go back to the 1970s and the early 80s, um, the style of general practice was very doctor-centred. You, know, you would go to the doctor and be told what to do, and you would dutifully go away and do it. Um, but for a whole variety of reasons, some of them, uh, some of them sociological, some of them financial, some of them political, um, it became right 
to shift that power balance and to, to kind of knock the professionals off their pedestals and, and, and try, at least in, in primary care, to have a relationship of two people who are much more equal. Um, and part of that involves trying to see things through the patient's eyes. And a whole range of, 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 of so-called models of the consultation were developed in the, late, in, in the, in the mid, mid-80s, late 80s. Um, trying to trying to achieve that that shift of style uh, and a number of books were published um, and the one that this particular acronym comes from was published in I think 1986 or I may have got the date wrong uh, by David Pendleton and a group of doctors from the Oxford region um, who identified um, uh, um, seven tasks for the consultation one of which was was working out why the patient had come, and in a little, so it's only a tiny little, it's, it's less than half a page in their original book, um, the idea that you might like to, uh, to explore what the patient thought was going on, their ideas, what they were worried about, whether they had any particular concerns, the C, and to have some ideas to have what kind of help they were expecting from you, their expectations. And that was put in as, not as a technique or as a tool, but just something that the good doctor ought to be interested in. They just said, this is really important if you're trying to get inside the, the, your patient's skin. You need to have to end up with some idea of, of this. And unfortunately, that's, uh, we, we were then overtaken by a little history in that um, towards the end of the 1980s and into the 1990s, it became apparent in general practice that setting some sort of entry standard before people could, could practice was important. Um, and I think rightly so, rightly, um, and in, and a, a component of that assessment was about communication. Um, and so what was initially a, a, a kind of an aspiration, that dreaded political word, an aspiration, became a point on a curriculum. And of course, once something is on a curriculum, then people start teaching it and teaching to it and trying to encourage people to pass and examine it. It's all perfectly understandable, but it's somewhere along that journey it's become slightly devalued, it's lost a lot of its nuances, it's lost uh, much of its subtlety, and it's become something you just have to do, or people believe you have to do, to pass a mandatory exam. And some of the bad performances that Rosamond's article refers to are, I think, how, how some doctors behave when they know they ought to, but they don't quite know how to. So it was a long-winded run through a little history, but it's 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 such a short three-letter word, but it taps yeah. into a huge amount of of cultural history and general practice. So really, what you're sort of saying is that what was supposed to be a helpful reminder or a memoir of what you should be sort of thinking about in the yes. consultation has sort of developed into something it shouldn't be, uh, i.e. Yes. A, a teaching aid. Uh, it's become a teaching aid, and uh, as a teaching aid, it's fine. I mean, the, the, the purpose of a teaching aid is to change people's behaviour. Yeah. Um, but I, I quite like, when we're thinking about this, to use the analogy of, 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 of acquiring another skill, say, learning to drive. Mm. Um, if you think about the sequences that people go through, in, in, from, from being a novice to a skilled driver... Um, before you're age 17, it's just something that mum and dad do and you, and you know it gets done, but you've no idea how. And then at age 17, you start learning and you're taught systematically mirror signal manoeuvre, one another three-letter acronym, position speed, look, you know, another three-letter acronym. Um, and in the driving test, you overdo it and you do it so that the examiner can see you doing it. Um, and you're clunky and it's a bit artificial. Uh, and the skilled examiner in the driving test can see, well, it's in place now. Um, we can pass this person because in, in future, as, as you know, with experience, it becomes less clunky. You can't see the joins. It just becomes something that good drivers do. Um, and the same thing happens with, with, uh, with most of the, of the communication teaching that we do. It's not meant to be 
an end point. It's meant to be a step along the way towards maturity. Um, and uh, I was interested in, in Rosamond's article when she mentions the doctor who had gold standard communication skills, who I bet was probably, uh, was probably older than the other ones. Uh, not necessarily, actually. I mean, I don't know who, who my friend saw. Um, I, it's, I think the, the difference between that doctor and the others, um, certainly um, she, was, um, she was a consultant level, so she, she was more experienced, that's certainly true. Um, the well it may not have been actually I don't know how long the GP had been a GP, um, but in that particular case of my friend, um, but I think the the key thing there was that now she may well have at the end of the consultation gone through her head and thought have I got the ideas concerns and expectations, the difference was that she didn't lead with it. Yes. What she led with yes. was me, and my question yes. and yes. answering my question, and. That was that's the the other half of this is that um, in order to even if you asked me my ideas, concerns and expectations, and even if I did understand what that meant, I still need to have <coughs> built up trust with the doctor. Yes. One of the things that helps me feel that I can open up is them answering the question. Um, and then I'm probably going to give the ideas, concerns and expectations without them even noticing. Yes. Your uh, article, it, it's also about the fact that people don't necessarily these these are not natural questions to ask face to face and and that sometimes if you want to get this information there's a need for you to to explain to people why you're asking it yeah. um which i know is something that you you did mention in the, in the article yes i mean i think um if if someone said to me for example i uh, what do you think it is because you might have googled this that lets me know that actually this doctor's not going to be threatened by me going online and searching for information myself which a lot of doctors are threatened by so that's already i feel as if i can talk more freely to this doctor um but also i just know why the question's being asked uh, I, I absolutely agree rosamond with, with what you say about about trust and that the, any kind of personal questions including these has to be predicated on some sort of relationship of trust, otherwise it just becomes play-acting and it's phony. And so most of, most of the advice that it gets, if we can broaden the topic of, of, of how these things get taught slightly, um, most of the advice about how to begin the consultation is concerned with getting the patient into telling the doctor all about it mode and whatever it takes to, to achieve that. Uh, and you don't get the patient into telling the doctor all about it mode by saying, right, tell me your ideas, concerns and expectations. Yeah. That prompts defensiveness, understandably. Um, but it's, it's not that difficult. I mean, you, you, you do it socially with, with, with somebody that you meet at a party or somebody, somebody that you'd like to get to know if you want to, 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 to establish a rapport fairly quick. It's not that difficult. We do it outside the consulting room day after day. Why do we think it is that doctors forget the skills they've learnt when they start consulting? I'm trying to remember what it was like to be 18 and on the verge of learning medicine, which is terrific. It's what you've set your heart on and there's all this great knowledge and there are huge amounts of knowledge and clever people and machine, expensive machinery. And uh, it, it's very seductive to think that there's all that knowledge out there which I can learn um, and learn it we do. Um, but I suspect that that probably becomes so seductive that we forget that... We, we forget the merits of the more ordinary stuff about how we talk to people mm -hmm. um, in, in our real life. It, it's very seductive to think, oh, I'm a doctor now. Um, and um, as, as we talk about that, I'm reminded that there's a film called Patch Adams, which stars Robin Williams. I don't know whether you've seen it. Um, it concerns 
um, it, it follows him through training in, in medicine in, uh, in in North America some time ago, admittedly. But but the, the ethos rings true. Um, and there's a wonderful scene where the dean of the medical school comes in and talks to the audience of medical schools on day one, their very, their very first day at medical school. Um, and he says, and, and the dean says something like, um, the patient gives you an awesome power to cut him open. Um, why does he do that? Because he trusts you. He trusts, he trusts you like a child does. Who gives him that power? Who, who gives you that power? The patient gives you the power to do that. Um, he trusts you um, to, uh, to, to, to cut him open. And, he, and then the dean goes on and says, that's foolish. No, no, no sane person would, would trust a human being because human beings get tired, they, they forget things, they have off days. No, no rational person would put their trust in a human being. And this is the this is the clinch line. He says, and here we're going to tr- we're, we're going to uh, we're going to train that out of you. We're going to make you something better. We're going to make doctors out of you. And there's that that, emph- that there is there is still that 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 feeling that it's much less intense than it used to be. So sure, mm. but it's still there to some extent. The, the idea that to be a good doctor, you have to have certain things trained out of you. Um, all those distracting things like your own feelings and your own emotions and your own personality. Mm. Um, there's still a bit of a belief that that has no place in medicine. I absolutely challenge that. I think, it's, it, but uh, it, it still lingers to some extent. Sophie, I'm just interested to know. We've been talking about training uh, to be a doctor. How does this ring with your experience? I think that I found I started to develop my own personal consultation skills really after I'd completed my exams because I found the whole process of the exam and you know the books that you're told to read and the the lectures that you're told to attend are very formulaic and they advise you to you know think about things in terms of ideas concerns and expectations and actually as as Roger said this is a reminder it's not actually a clinical skill but it but it becomes part of your consultation and so I think only after you've done the exams and you have ticked the boxes it then sort of gives you this license to feel that you can start to develop your own skills you can go back to basics and start talking to Mm -hmm. patients actually Um, and I think if you talk to patients and you're curious you will get the answers you just don't need to ask the questions Um, but it isn't until a bit later on that you find that out for yourself I think (laughs) that was my personal experience and Roger does that resonate with your experience training GPs Um, very much so I think if you take 100 GPs at, at, at exam stage, you know, towards the end of their um, vocational training for general practice, probably about 30 of them are pretty natural, you know, and, um, and probably about 20 of them one has, shall we say, serious reservations about. 50 in the middle are, are promising, and you're pretty sure that given time, given a bit of fluency, they'll be, they'll be fine. Um, so I think I think I think it does, but it, I think we have to think of it think of it as, as a maturation process mm. rather than a, an all or none thing. Mm. Um. I, I also I just want to pick up as well mm. on what you said about being up against the clock. Perhaps maybe what people worry about is the fact that they do have only ten minutes, and perhaps yes. they think this is a magic bullet that will get them where they need Possibly. to be. Yes. But it's it yes. is difficult trying to to sort of perhaps get people to step back from that and just yes. be themselves in a consultation. What w- one of my current sort of hobby horses, if you like, is, is we have got an artificial distinction within the individual doctor. It, it's as if we feel there's a part of us which is professional and medically trained and full of knowledge and competence mm. and skills and the rest of it. And that's somehow separate from the human being that I am when I, when yes. I step outside the room. 
yeah. you know, where I've got a life and memories and experience and emotions and all those other yes. things. And there has grown up, for a variety of reasons, a kind of sense that those things have to be kept separate. Yeah. Uh, and that professionalism consists of keeping one's, one's personality out right. of it. I challenge that. I don't think it's right. Um, because once you, once you allow your own natural human curiosity to feed yeah. in and combine with your professionalism, I think you've actually got someone, something pretty close to the ideal. I mean, what could be better than a doctor who is professionally unbelievably competent and genuinely caring about you? I mean, what, what more could you wish for? Yeah. Um, but how we get that, that reintegration is, is tricky. And, and at the moment, quite a lot of our educational system, and particularly our assessment systems, militate against that. Mm. I mean, the assessments might, but, but do you think examiners want to see this in an exam? They hate it. Mm. Um, I remember once um, seeing in the MRCGP exam in a previous incarnation where we had oral exams um, with a candidate across a desk from an examiner, um, a young man was describing to me a patient that he'd seen and he said, of course, I iced the patient and all that rubbish. Oh, God, how awful. Mm. I not just iced the patient as if it was something you do like a cake. (laughs) um, and, and all that rubbish, and, and he kind of looked across to me as if, uh, with a kind of sort of slightly knowing look, as if I was supposed to say, "Yes, I know it's all just pretense. We just do it for the exam, don't we?" And I was supposed to kind of say, "Well, yes, we we, we both agree. Yeah. We collude that it's rubbish." No, it isn't, um, and that that seemed tremendously uh, tremendously sad, really. Yeah. So the candidates that do that, that you've seen in your role as an mm. examiner in the past, mm. the candidates that do well, what do you look for? What really impresses us. As examiners, when we can, is, is when we see somebody who is clearly just doing in the exam what they probably do twenty times a day back at the ranch at the cold face, um, and a piece of advice which which I constantly give to to doctors in training, particularly those who perhaps are going to anticipate having 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 a bit of a struggle with this part of their assessment, um, is don't go on courses, don't read too many books, don't try and do it by the book, don't resort to, to stock phrases. See loads and loads of patients, get comfortable with seeing loads and loads of patients, get into the habit of talking to patients like you would to any other person. And then on the day, just go and do what you always do. And sadly, uh, candidates seldom take that advice seriously. Understandably, because it's a high high risk exam, the MRCGP, it's it's expensive, it has a significant fail rate. Um, and it's it's a high stakes thing, mm. and unfortunately, when, you know, it's very easy under stress to try to revert to structure, and to revert to so to what someone has told you are the certainties, like whatever whatever you do, don't forget to ice them, whatever you do, don't forget to check for understanding, um, and uh, in the heat of battle, when it's, when it's that situation, people tend to. to uh, to, uh, if, if they haven't got much experience to go on, they tend to fall back on the rules. Um, so what, what I, as, as, as an examiner, uh, and I still, though I'm no longer a CSA examiner, I still coach and teach in, in, in that area, um, what I like to see is somebody who isn't afraid to let the patient see the human being that you are. Um, including sometimes, uh, I don't know what's going on here, Um, Mm -hmm. I need more information and I'm struggling here. Um, I'd find it really helpful if you could tell me more about this. That degree of openness from the doctor is usually rewarded by a reciprocal openness from the patient, including, as Rosamond was saying, volunteering spontaneously the information that otherwise has to be fished for. Just trying to wrap up now, Rosamond, I I think your article's really good and I've I've really enjoyed reading it. I think it's very helpful and it raises a lot of questions and I've I've really enjoyed listening Mm -hmm. to Roger's responses. I I just wondered if both of you, from your different perspectives, have any sort of key tips, really, um, sort of 
if you think about the the population that are coming through now, learning these skills, developing them and taking their exams, what would your advice to them be? I think um, if you're going to have a motto that you hold in your mind to think, am I doing this right? It is something that the very first um, author in our um, What Your Patient's Thinking series said, which is answer the question answer the question the patient has come in to see you with. Do that first. If you do nothing else, actually, you've still done a good job. And that will help you then get the trust. You'll probably get all these other things, Mm -hmm. the ideas, concerns and expectations. Um, And from having talked to you, Sophie, and uh, other GPs, I realised that this is a useful um, checklist for them in the back of their heads, as long as it's not what they're leading with. So... I, I can see the value, but certainly for for the next generation of doctors, just make sure that you're responding to the patient and not to the checklist. Thank you. And Roger, the same question for yes, you. Yes, I think I'd, I'd like to sort of, in imagination, address my answer to people still learning the craft, as it were, and it would be something along the lines of this. Make, make lots of videos of yourself. Don't overdo the clever analysis. Just imagine yourself sitting in the patient's chair and think to yourself, what's it like to be talked to in this way by this doctor who happens to be me on the the screen? But how is this doctor who happens to be me coming across? Would I like to be talked to in that way? You don't have to do You don't have to take it to anybody else. Just think about that. And the the second piece of advice I would would say is, is try to get more and more confident with just thinking out loud. Say what's going through your mind. Say what you want to know and why you want to know it. Say what you what you make of the situation and, and the bits you're clear about and the bits you're not clear about. The more you can say it out loud, let the patient see the working of your mind, the less you have to rely on artificial stuff like, like some of these acronyms. Thanks, Rosamond. Thanks, Roger, for joining me today. And that article, You've Been Iced, is now available on the BMJ.com.